order. I'm Damien Venuto. It's December 7th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The thought of a job with unlimited leave might seem splendid. You could ostensibly take weeks off whenever you feel like it and have a work-life balance that most could only dream of. But this isn't always how things work out. Jared Ha, the Associate Dean at Massey Business School, has looked into the details of how having holidays when you want actually works in practice and found that there can be some worrying unintended consequences. He joins the front page today to help us understand why the promise of unlimited leave often has some unexpected limitations. Jared, a handful of companies have caused a stir this year by offering staff unlimited leave. The latest one to make headlines is Dunedin retailer Hobby Lords, who are granting unlimited sick and annual leave to all employees. What do you make of this move? I mean, it's a great move. That should be our first thing, right? Because fundamentally it's saying, if you work for us, we're going to trust you. And our expectation is if you're sick, you're going to take sick leave. And if you need two days or two weeks, whatever, we trust you. And I guess the holiday leave is a little bit more interesting. The data tells us, though, ironically, in these workplaces, they do not have, on average, those that do this, they don't have workforces that take super long leave. When you hear that, right, your first thought is, wow, imagine if I took December and January off. But what tends to happen is that we just operate pretty much normally, whatever I'd normally take, two weeks over the Christmas, New Year's, and it's just the kind of backstop or the safety net. And you could, you know, in that kind of place, you could go to your boss and say, gee whiz, I am so tired from a busy, you know, let's say it's in you know late January. I said, we've had such a busy Christmas time. I need like a couple of weeks off. Okay, that's good. Where you go? Choice. You've looked into a few of the experiments that have been conducted internationally, right? And interestingly enough, employees either take pretty much whatever they used to take or the average, or believe it or not, they actually take less leave because it's about the psychological buy-in, right? And so if you're my boss and you say, hey, Jared, we've got unlimited leave, I don't say, great, after my first week, I want to take a month off because that would be abusing the system, right? But what typically happens is I work for you and and I can take leave and, hey, can I have Friday off? No, but Monday's fine because that's a quiet time. Oh, choice. After a while, we realize, gee whiz, this manager is great and I like working in those kind of places and I and which means I actually want to keep working not taking the unlimited leave so I think the interesting thing is we all think wow workers must take five six ten weeks off a year no they tend to take in a New Zealand comparison we just take the normal four weeks but it's just the whole freedom and I guess that whole kind of trust aspect that really changes with this kind of offer from your employer. And Stevie Mayhew from possibly the best workplace in New Zealand is here. Now that the trial's over, have you gone back to that standard four weeks leave or are you going to continue with it? No, we're going to keep the unlimited leave going. It's now a policy and it's forever as far as I know in our business. It isn't altogether surprising that legal software company Action Step, which trialled this exact concept over the last year, is now making it permanent because it doesn't really affect your business if people are taking roughly the same amount of leave, right? 
Yeah, and the important thing, especially for like, you know, IT companies that might be struggling to retain and attract staff, it all becomes part of the offering, right? Oh, you know, we, here's our competitive salary, but we have unlimited leave. Oh, geez, that sounds, you know, that's better than the other offer I'm getting or in my current job. And even though you might end up taking the same amount of leave fundamentally in your mind, you just think, what happens if I go to Fiji and I fall in love and I want to get an extra couple of weeks? You'd probably think your employer is going to say, sure, bro, knock it out of the park. You go and have fun and we'll see you in two more weeks. Oh my gosh, you're, you're the best boss ever. So then I don't want to leave that job. So the employer will get the reward back in other ways, right? So it totally makes sense why companies like Action Step are doing this permanently. You make a really good point there, because ever since the pandemic, employers have talked about how difficult it is to hire and retain staff. But hobby lords were inundated with applications after announcing their leave policy. It's just we don't penalise them if they're going to negatives. If they want to take lots of leave, we're not going to penalise them. We're not going to tell them, no, you can't do that. We want to make sure our staff are happy because it does come across in their mannerisms. Customers do see the difference. Do you think that this kind of shows that people are willing to work but are just less tolerant of bad pay or conditions than they used to be? Or maybe this is still so unique. It's still unusual that... A hobby company, I can understand the high-level tech one. It's got a, you know, high education, high skill level. And yet this hobby one is saying, hey, we're going to have a point of difference in the market. They'll get really good applicants, right? And they'll be thinking, jeez, never would have got this normally. And so from their point of view, they're already winning, right? They're getting the kind of people that they possibly could only dream of employing. And who's going to sell your product more? The happy worker who goes, yeah, I'm looking forward to a couple of weeks off over Christmas, but I think I might take a couple of weeks off over Easter and maybe a couple of weeks to Fiji in June. Now, whether even if I don't take all of that leave, the fact that I can dream about it and think my employer will actually somewhat support it, I think just makes you more motivated and productive as an employee. Much of this seems to come down to trust in the workplace. So how do you go about establishing trust when you have a system that gives you so much freedom? Yeah, I mean, I think it is all about trust. And trust gets built by things like equity and fairness. You know, and if I say, hey, I want two weeks off, and they go, well, actually, you're too slow. Paddy's got two weeks off over Easter. And I'm like, oh, well, that stinks. Hey, but you know what? When he comes back, you can have your two weeks after that. You know, and then I start thinking, well, actually, next year, I'll get ahead of Paddy and, and I'll be looking for this at the end of this year. And if you think about it, I've now got workers trying to map out their breaks in a year and a half's time, which means they're not looking for a job elsewhere. And when somebody leaves and we think, oh, my gosh, how am I going to replace them? Even though the, the economy might be starting to turn somewhat now, I still think there's still a shortage of skilled workers. So this kind of, I guess, the trust here from the employer's perspective is literally putting their money where their mouth is and saying, hey, come work for us. If you get sick, we won't say, hey, two days, I need a doctor's certificate, right? They'll say, no, no, Jerry, that's all right. We trust you. You have been sick. Okay, you come back when you're ready, and then we'll expect some good work out of you. What role do you think management plays in establishing a culture that actually allows this to exist? Because surely if you have a really highly competitive manager who never takes leave, staff members are going to look at that and think very carefully about whether they want to tap into the leave that's available to them. In the modelling behaviour of managers, 
is very important because, you know, I guess the, the truth of this one would be when I go to that manager and say, hey, I, wa I want those couple of weeks off in April. And, and they're like, no, you can't have it. And then you start to think, oh, so we've got unlimited leave on paper, but it's not a reality. And then whatever kind of competitive advantage you had through this just will be gone. So perhaps the good thing with your question there is reminding managers or leaders that if you're going to have these kind of policies, model them as much as you can. And it might be that you, you know, you say, well, actually, I'm going to take some time off because then you set a good standard for your workers. You know, we've had this, you know, a few years ago, leave loudly, you know, trying to get CEOs to leave at five o'clock and do it loudly so workers know, hey, the boss is leaving. I expect you to be leaving as well. The Front Page is the New Zealand Herald's daily news podcast. And for more business news, opinion and podcasts, head to nzherald.co.nz. Do you think prospective employees should be cautious about how their contracts are actually worded when they agree to these types of perks? One of the questions I'd ask in an interview is say, hey, explain to me how unlimited leave works. Because, you know, as you say, the devil will be in the detail. And it's not like we say, oh, no, you can take up to 52 weeks off a year. Really? No, hell no. We'll go out of business. There's nobody running the shop. So what does it actually mean? But, you know, if they say, hey, no, we're really supportive of people having time off. Is it a culture where they expect you to work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week? And then after three or four or six months, then you get some time off. You know, you might be thinking, God, that's that's not quite what I was thinking. So I think it is about just kind of understanding how it's going to be interpreted. You might find that in the contract, but often it might say, you know, at the proviso of your immediate manager, which goes back to that earlier point. If your manager isn't playing the game, the unlimited leave might turn out to be a bit of a dream. Jared, one problem that I've always had with this idea of flexibility is that it does start to shake at the core of the labor laws that have been in the making for decades. So as a society, are we thinking carefully enough about the unintended consequences that could emerge from introducing greater flexibility without the legal framework to support that flexibility? I don't know if that is the major problem, because I think there'll be a lot of especially salaried workers who are working well and truly more than their, you know, 37 and a half hours or 40 hours a week that their contracts say. So I think that's probably not the problem. And if anything, if we're all working, you know, New Zealand does have a workforce that works a lot of extra hours. I think our managers in particular work excess of 50 hours, a lot more than in other OECD countries, for example. So we know the system is actually stacked against the worker for the amount of work you're doing. So the fact that you want to say, hey, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, you know, if, if as long as you're getting paid leave up to, you know, I don't know what unlimited leave might be in the contract. Maybe it says eight weeks leave a year. Maybe it's four weeks guaranteed because that would be our legal establishment and they give you, you know, one to four weeks extra or something along those lines. I can't see it being more than that because then you would be on holiday more than you're working. Yeah, so I think the employment law is probably flexible enough if you are looking to take more leave. But, you know, it's illegal, for example, to be giving less leave. So that would be kind of the main disadvantage from a legal perspective. 
One criticism I have heard is that so much of our employment law is currently written with the idea that we work a certain number of hours in a given week and in a given day. But do you think that there's a need to shift the focus to the value of what's actually being produced? Or does that open up a whole other can of worms that we just shouldn't be dealing with right now? Oh, and I think there are companies dealing with that. I mean, I think that's a really good conversation to have because it is about being productive, not necessarily in the workplace. And probably the best example of this that came out of New Zealand is the four-day work week, where you're looking to do 100% of the work with 80% of the time and 100% of the pay. So that's one way of kind of capturing the focus on being more productive. And the research I did on the four-day work week and the international research continues and supports this is it's all about giving workers the, I guess, the motivation, the, the carrot to do their work more efficiently. So to maintain the level of work, the data out there tells us we waste something akin to like half a workday, four hours a day on needless meetings, cooler chat, you know, all this kind of rubbishy thing. Whereas if I said to you, if you can do all your work in 32 hours, not 40 hours, you can have that extra day off. People start making their meetings more effective, shorter, focused, whacking into the work. So it is about being more productive in the hours that you've got rather than just filling your time to make the day pass. And the interesting thing about that, too, is that day that's saved becomes a productivity gain for the country more broadly, because a lot of those people are upskilling, learning new new trades, which will ultimately lead to further productivity gains down the line, right? So that's part of it. So in the research I did, we had some like accountants saying, oh, I'm now spending my what was typically my fifth day a week. I'm working for a not for profit. I work for free. I do their accounts for them and I want to give back to society. And we had people saying, oh, I bake cakes. So I do my gardening and then I go and share it with my elderly neighbor. And I was thinking like, there's these real rich things which will make the country actually a more enjoyable place. these workers going back to work after their four-day week who are just energized and thinking yeah this is a great place to work and they're able to do other things that they just you know so our, our lives are crazily busy and full of in all honesty probably too much to do so having that extra day can help you either unwind or kind of reinforce connections with your children at school for example which will make society better Jared, no discussion about the workplace would be complete without mentioning generative AI. The promise here is that it'll speed up the mundane and give us more time to focus on the creative or innovative sides of our jobs. But do you think it'll really pan out that way when employers could simply just cut overheads through layoffs? And when you also look at the broader context of what actually happens within a capitalist society? We haven't got to that stage yet, but I just saw something recently saying, you know, China's looking at engaging a heck of a lot more, you know, AI and robotics in the workplace. So I think that's definitely a fear because unfortunately, as much as we like to think about, you know, oh, let's take away the mundane parts of your job. I think, you know, this is going to be things for employees to take their own initiative on this and try to make themselves more and more indispensable. So then the manager thinks, man, I just can't get rid of this workforce. They're just too good. But I do think that's a kind of reality, or at least a fear that's out there. I've just done some research on this, and it's fair to say that the New Zealand workforce probably sees AI as more beneficial than detrimental at the moment. And I, I'm kind of looking to track that over the next couple of years to, to see how that holds. But 
I totally agree with the context of capitalism, which might just suggest, gee whiz, I'll just chop the workforce and do it on AI. Maybe the point there for the New Zealand consumer is to make sure that they're buying human-made or products that have passed through a human so we keep ourselves employed and not playing the game to some kind of capitalist trying to maximise their wealth. That's a fascinating insight into what the future of ethical consumerism could look like. I totally agree. Just looking more broadly at the growing flexibility in the workplace, do you think a concept like unlimited leave is here to stay? Or is it just going to be a fad that's good to attract a bit of attention to a business now and then abolish a bit later down the line? I think it's something that you would definitely see coming to stay. You know, I think one thing we've had with COVID is the whole working from home. Stats New Zealand reported about 2.9% of the workforce were working from home most of the time. And and my New Zealand data says just under 40% doing either hybrid work or, and, and my last data was about 8% working from home permanently, five days a week. So I think we've had a radical change. You know, and we've seen this internationally where companies are saying, you've got to come back to work. And their latest thing is, you know, if you want to be promoted, you've got to be in the office three days a week, which to me sounds like you're still doing two days a week hybrid working from home. So that sounds pretty productive to me. I think we have seen this kind of massive change and, you know, and and we've just experienced things where we think, gosh, I can do my job better from home. I personally like a mixture of both. I'm way more productive at home, but it's also way better to make social interactions in person than it is, you know, the whole Zoom call thing where you're smiling at people pales in comparison to real life. I do think things are going to change, and I do think this kind of growing flexibility approach is more likely to keep growing because I think if you're after talent and the war for talent, you know, it's been going on for a few decades now, and I don't think that's going to stop. You know, anything that can make you a little bit stand apart from your competitors will be good for the workforce. Thanks for joining us, Jared. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.